Welcome to Amona Moment, a podcast hosted by the Museum of Northwest Art in Laconner, Washington. The Museum of Northwest Art connects people with the art, diverse cultures, and environments of the Northwest. It also enriches lives in our diverse community by fostering essential conversations and encouraging creativity through exhibitions and educational activities that explore the art of the Northwest. On December 1st, Mona hosted a Surge Open House, which was a day filled with multiple events. This Mona moment is a recording of one of those events, which was a talk by a Surge contributing artist, Suze Wolf, about her work and process. We hope you enjoy this Mona moment. We're so excited you could join us today for the Surge Open House. Um, so I know you're all here to listen to Sue's Wolf talk. And then at 1.30, there is a upcycled book making activity, which will be down in the art studio. But if you want to hang around and talk more, um, you are welcome to stay up here. Um, we're just so excited you could be here. So it is an honor to introduce Sue's Wolf, um, who's going to talk to you about her work and her process of making books out of bark um, that has been carved by pine bark beetles. So please join me in welcoming Suze. Right, I, I asked to dispense with a formal introduction because I'm going to try to go through as much as I possibly can. Uh, please feel free to ask questions uh, at, later. Okay, so I wanted to talk about how I got from uh, being primarily a painter to making these crazy books. Uh, I think of myself primarily as a painter and mostly a watercolor painter uh, because I can take it anywhere. So some of the many places I take uh, paints, that's Zion National Park, Mount Baker, uh, I think that's Mount Rainier, uh, the Grand Canyon, Mount Rainier, uh, that's up in near Stahican, uh Rock Mountain, you get the idea. I, and I like that it's fast, unlike books, uh, that it doesn't, you know, I, there are no warnings on the, the water bottle. Um, it has a very beautiful quality that comes from several things that are unique to it as a medium. The white of the substrate, the paper shows through, it has a kind of luminous quality. And the paints mix themselves. I wish this thing didn't jiggle. Uh, so I've painted a lot of landscapes. All those places I, I was, I like to go paint them. Uh, it brings me a great deal of pleasure. Most of us are inspired. I think anyone who cares about what's here is probably inspired by natural beauty. You want to create some kind of emotional connection and memory of it. Um, there's quite a long um, art history tradition of painting landscapes. And in our own country, the whole idea of national parks was aided and abetted by artists who went to paint with them. Uh, and of course, I've spent most of my life out in the back country. Uh, I think of these paintings as love letters to the planet. Uh, and in our country and in Canada in particular, it was part of a sort of national, uh, you know, we, here's us, we're not European, we're going to paint our own country the way we want. And uh, so in the, the Hudson River School in the US in the 19th century, and almost 100, you know, 50 to 100 years later, the same thing, you saw the same thing in Canada. A little aside, I've done a lot of artist residencies in the national parks. And as I said earlier, the uh, artists were 
very much a part of uh, both surveying and creating uh, the parks. Frederick Dellenbaugh wrote an article in the 1903 Harpers, I think it was, and, paint, and painted his own illustrations. And uh, within six years, it was a national monument. And the railroads used to hire artists to popularize the parks as destinations. So as I just said, I've been to a number of different national parks as artist in residence. This is my most recent, I was in Capitol Reef uh, in October. And then there are, there's another kind of residency where you go and you get to do work with a bunch of other artists. And so I've done a bunch of those too, very different, uh, both extremely beneficial experiences. So I paint these landscapes because I love them, but in the process of doing that, I've become aware of what some of the issues are with the, those landscapes. So this happens, to, I started painting burned over landscapes and trees in 2008. Uh, I had been aware for a while that uh, things were, were strange. Uh, I remember driving across Canada in 2003 and realizing sort of from Kamloops to Revelstoke, all the trees I could see were red. And I thought, oh, this is all going to burn up. And sure enough, 2003, I think, was one of the, uh, used to be one of the biggest fire years in BC's history. So I'm not going to go through all this data. I have uh, um, citations for it all. Some of it's already outdated. Probably the most important one, the uh, Fourth National Climate Assessment that just came out over Thanksgiving. Um, one of the hypotheses in there, or uh, predictions, is a six-fold possible increase in wildfire. Uh, pretty serious. So I started painting them. Uh, I thought, I gotta, I gotta paint what I see. And it seemed to me that everywhere I went, I saw more and more burned over areas. So at first I painted, and I'm gonna go through these quickly. At first I painted the whole landscape. Uh, a lot in the Cascades where I Spent a lot of time, uh, even in the winter. Um, I was a resident in Banff uh, in winter of 2011, uh, and uh, they gave me this huge studio, uh, and everything that I put on the wall looked so dinky. I thought, I've got to paint something really big. So I uh, these are um, 50 inches wide by 75 inches high, bigger than me. And bless her heart, one of the um, assistants there said, you should take those outside and wrap them around real trees, which I did. Uh, and that's over in the Metau. And it was just, it was an aesthetic high. You don't know whether you're looking at the inside of the tree, the future of the tree. It was a great experience. I, I've since exhibited those same paintings paintings around concrete forms. That gives you some idea of the scale. That's my driveway. Um, one of the things the Banff experience made me think about was how can I connect the process of making the work with the artifact itself. So I went down to the sculpture shop and borrowed a soldering iron and started making drawings with it, which uh, for a painter is a great reminder that um, scale and occlusion is enough to give you depth of space. So you read a space in that, even though it's nothing but, but simple lines. So I made lots of kind of scroll forms uh, of the uh, burned areas I was seeing around, the, around Banff. 
I tried actually painting paintings and then burning parts of the paintings. But really, I think you can't tell that it's not just paint. This one, I used my daughter's chef's torch to do the foreground trees. Uh, and that one just has singed edges and a light. <laughs> that, that cutout at the top is not actually there. <laughs> the shadow of a light. And I also started thinking about, well, what are some other forms that I could, could uh, express this with? And I learned a lot about casting, mold making and casting, and I made paper casts. To be sure, uh, high quality paper is made from cotton, not wood pulp, but it's sort of the same idea. Uh, and I made paintings that were um, four views of the same log and then cast the log uh, in paper as well. And then I started really focusing in on, I realized my favorite part of the paintings was always the pattern in the char. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna just do a little you know, macro views of that char. And the first couple I did were rectangular like this. And I was walking along a trail and I suddenly thought, wait a minute, this is paper. It doesn't have to be a rectangle. I can make it any shape I want. I don't have stretchers in a canvas. So I started uh, tearing the paper in the shape of the tree before I painted the tree. And that led me a lot of other places, many trees. These all happen to be from Zion. Uh, these are both from Stahican, east side of the North Cascades. Uh, so is that one. I know that part of what gets my neurons buzzing, because it happens to the same, the same thing when I see patterns in sandstone. It's this kind of structured randomness that there's, you know, the interaction of the fire and the, uh, of the tree and its biology, the growth and so forth, makes them all the same and all different. Uh, I just didn't have room to put two on this slide. That's the most recent tree I've finished. And that's from Mesa Verde, it's a pinion. So two years ago at Surge, th those originals were hanging back in that same corner where those uh, pieces of fabric are hanging now. Uh, I also installed that at the San Juan Island Museum of Art. Uh, and what I've been doing with some of those paintings ever since is getting them printed on fabric, cut with a hot knife, uh, so the shape is maintained, in two layers, a transparent and a solid. And this summer, um, 10 of those trees were in an Amazon storefront in Seattle. And you see the black ones. I've been collaborating with a young woman who is a wildland firefighter in, Colora in Colorado and an author. And so she's had me send her the lat long, the, you know, the forest type, the, uh, any photos I had, why I picked that tree, um, what the fire was, or she would look it up. Uh, and so she's been writing short stories that go with each tree. And later next year, that's going to hit the road in a free form installation that people can wander around in. And the stories will be on the back of each set of trees, so they hang about 8 to 12 inches, each layer 8 to 12 inches apart. So you can wander through this burned grove from all over the west. So somewhere along in here I got interested in the idea of artist books. I started learning about them. And at first I made books out of 
uh, prints of my own paintings. So there's one of the, some of those sandstone textures, uh, a river and some mountains. And uh, I was interested in the origami aspects of it. This one happens to be from Capitol Reef, again. So that opens out into this panorama and that uses an original painting rather than a print. Where is Capitol Reef? Uh, it's kind of the question, I don't know if you heard, the, could you all hear the question? Uh, Capitol Reef is in the middle of Utah pretty much and it, uh, it's about 100 miles northeast of Bryce. And it uh, includes a um, famous um, syncline, I think, uh, monocline, syncline, I can't remember. Uh, it goes one way, uh, all the way down to the, from the middle of the state, all the way down to the Colorado River. It's about 100 miles long. Uh, it's called the Water Pocket Fold. So uh, the early uh, Mormon settlers refer to any barrier as a reef, not necessarily uh, ocean only. And they thought some of the domes looked like the capital. So that's how it got its name. And I began to realize that the form and the materials were more interesting to me than whether there were paintings in them. So I started making books out of things that I found out there. This is uh, sandstone, and I used software to interpolate the top one to the bottom one. And it, lo and behold, it created its own little basa. Uh, and uh, I think of that as kind of the story of time. Um, I realized that the form and the materials I was using are the story, it didn't need words or pictures. Uh, this particular one, uh, brief aside, is um, crystalline selenite and uh, acrylic sheets that I made that same kind of interpolation between the front to the back over the, the number of pages. Um, there's a very famous uh, book art collector at the University of Washington who has just celebrated her 50th year of collecting artist books for the university's special collections. And there was a big uh, to-do in the artist book world, and many people made books for her 50th, uh, secretly for her 50th anniversary. And I uh, submitted this one. And I, uh, crystalline selenite turns out to be one of those sort of woo-woo things that some people think are psychically healing. And so I said she could file it either under geology or self-help. <laughs> uh, I tried making uh, an iceberg book in several different forms, acrylic that hung. I did one version with LEDs that change sort of ice-like colors uh, in, the, in a stand. And the one on the right is, was actually my test for making the acrylic version. The top uh, of the iceberg on the, its stand on a wall has a series of words very subtle in it. So I have used words uh, that go from frozen to liquid states, terms. So as I hike around looking for burn trees, I saw lots of scribed bark, uh, often right on the trail in front of me and realized you could see it on the wood uh, of standing timber or down logs uh, as well. So for example, this is um, Tianaway, east side of the Central Cascades, uh, Stahican, um, Bryce Canyon, uh, Southern Oregon, Colorado, uh, Montana, 
So pretty much everywhere I've been in the West, um, I've seen some evidence of, of bark beetles. So what I thought I'd do is go through the ones that aren't here. Um, the ones over in the back there are volumes uh, 13 through 21. Uh, and this goes in chronological order. Volume one is there on the left, volume two. Uh, the first thing I did was embed bark in resin because it's not strong enough otherwise to act as a cover. And just took the holes that were in the bark and interpolated them through a bunch of wooden pages. I used a friend's photo uh, uh, on a trip that we were both on where we both became fascinated by a very large log covered with these patterns. Uh, volume three, I dyed uh, felt using wire and nails um, with vinegar, uh, so it makes iron oxide. And the patterns that the wire uh, and the iron oxide as it disperses, or the iron as it disperses through the mixture made reminded me of those, some of those forms, and that's actual bark, again, embedded in resin. In my mind, there was a link between the fire uh, fires and um, the beetle kill. As it turns out, this is more complicated. There's, I, I, uh, one of my entomologist colleagues uh, tells me that there's some uh, data that show that uh, beetle killed wood actually is not as flammable as live trees. That live trees have their uh, volatile organic chemicals in the sap uh, and they torch if the fire is hot enough, whereas it takes a bit longer for um, dead decomposing wood uh, to catch fire. So that's kind of a twist. Um, I uh, had always assumed that if, if all that fuel sitting there, it must be dangerous. Uh, so that's volume five, I believe we're up to on the left. I had uh, etched the wood of the cover in a char pattern, and again used iron oxide dyed felt. On the right, volume six, I used images of different kinds of beetles and their names um, uh, laser engraved onto cork uh, as pages. Then I was interested in putting the larvae in, so those little beads uh, represent the larvae in their galleries two different volumes, seven and eight. And then, uh, thanks in part to barkbeetles.org, uh, I discovered encyclopedic uh, references to all the different patterns, and they are called galleries, that these different beetles make. And I began filling pages with simulacra of different patterns without knowing very much about them. Um, the one on the left is a, an actual log, and I liked the form of it stuck together so much that I had to figure out a way um, to make the form happen but still be able to open the book. So where all those strings are in the top uh, are magnets that will hold it together when it's not open, and then you can pull it apart, and the pages are bandsaw cut in the log, and I stamped, this is the world's slowest typesetting, uh, terms from a DNR paper about bark beetles. That one says pitch tubes. I don't know if you can see it particularly well. The one on the right is actually uh, 
buprestid or, por or cerambicid, uh, boring beetles that bore into the wood. They're not bark beetles, they're decomposers. They're not uh, the ones that are causing all the problems. But you have to admit that they make beautiful, beautiful uh, galleries. It really reminded me of um, Asian calligraphy. So the next nine are in cases behind you. You can go and look at them. And there's a video over on the other wall that I made to explain some of the processes uh, and the data or the thinking behind uh, why they have the forms they do. And I just want to say I'm still making them. So this is now volume 23, A and B. Uh, there are two the, the one on the far right over there are two little sticks covered with beetle galleries that have poems in them. The poet happens to be here today. She wrote me three poems. And this is the third that I finally finished. So it's for two different voices. So there are two different books at the top of that stack um, that uh, uh, and I alternate, the same poem is in each, and I alternated the typefaces for the different voices. And they both refer to, ultimately they are a metaphor for uh, what's called spatial niche partitioning in the, in the entomological world. I suspect elsewhere too. Um, the more aggressive beetles get the lower part of the tree uh, where the most nutrients are flowing up and down, and other beetles range themselves up the tree uh, and where they need fewer resources. So that's what the stacks are intended to be about. I think I uh, have gotten through this pretty quickly. Um, so I think of them as a kind of written metaphor. You know, they look like some kind of scribbling uh, for a message. The reason this is climate related, which I believe I haven't made clear, is that in the past, their numbers were kept in check by cold winters. The larvae in the trees tended to get killed off by sustained periods of um, well below zero, uh, up in the mountains especially. Uh, and because they're not getting killed off, um, they really, their populations have exploded. The graph is extraordinary. You'll see, you know, most of the century looks like this. And then all of a sudden, about 1990 or so, it just goes through the roof. It's, it's staggering. So it's also been a, an opportunity for me to explore uh, the forms and the ideas, the materials that uh, suggest wood to me, and with the scientists, what the data actually say. Uh, and I know that I wouldn't have had some of these ideas if not for conversations with Dave Peterson, who's sitting right there, uh, and two entomologists, one of whom he introduced himself, he introduced to me, and another from the University of Montana, uh, who came all the way to spend a few days hiking in the woods with me. I was so thrilled, honored. Uh, and so here's some of my collaborators, Dave Peterson, Dr. Six from Montana, Dr. Tobin from UW, poet Melinda, it's also here. And then I got help for one piece from uh, the Forest Service does annual uh, tree mortality aerial surveys. They let me have their maps. Uh, there's a fellow in New Mexico who actually made recordings of beetles chewing 
in the tree. And the beginning of the video over there and the end have those sounds in it. Um, other people gave me photos. And I, I mentioned barkbeetles.org already. So if you want to see more, there's some on my website. And then I also have a blog where I, it takes me a long time to get around to it, but I try to at least describe my residencies. And uh, thanks for coming and seeing all this. Thank you. Any questions? Yes? Okay, um, so rust, you know, uh, is uh, any time um, iron oxidizes and you can make it oxidize faster with various solutions. The one that I'm the most familiar with is um, uh, vinegar. I'm trying to remember if there's anything besides vinegar. I don't think so. I've, so I've put steel wool and wire and nails uh, in a bag uh, with my felt. And I have uh, tried doing that before it's laser cut and after. It doesn't make much difference. Either way is fine. Uh, there are other solutions. And you, of course, you can find on the internet lots of ways to do this. Lots of fabric people, textile people do iron oxide uh, dyeing. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I think it's beautiful too, and it reminds me of wood. Melinda. You wanna, I mean, one of the things that just, having been to your studio, among other things, I am fascinated by the um, combination in your work of something that's random, such as what's going to happen with the iron oxide in the felt, with unbelievable precision required for some of these pieces. Uh, I don't know what you want to say about that, but I'm just astonished. <laughs> well, they're not as precise as you might think. Uh, there's a reason they're sitting under uh, vitrine covers. If thousands of people handle them, they'll fall apart. They're not um, uh, like they, they, they don't have the thousands of years of technology and of bookbinding that real books have. Um, although they use many of the same techniques. So I, I would maybe argue that precision isn't quite the word. There is, it does take a lot of planning um, to know what's going to back on what and how it should all go together. So little paper mock-ups and that kind of thing is, is a good practice. And yes, it's, I like to think of it as a kind of stop motion sculpture. Uh, and for a painter, which I still kind of identify as a painter, uh, it's really a hoot to do something that has dimension, sequence, is, you know, kind of intimate compared to an eyeful on a wall. Uh, so it's a great um, kind of alternate uh, identity for me. I don't know if I've answered your question. I'm not sure it could be answered. <laughs> <laughs> Dave. Have you looked at wood bores at all? Um, you mean like the emerald ash borer? Or, um... Well, in a fire, kind of typical thing is the bark begins to burst. Yes. And then once the tree is dead, the wood bores come in and start shaping. Right. 
Yes. They aren't quite as elegant as artists themselves. Oh, I don't know. Interesting channels. So um, at that end, the south end, those uh, there are two standing up books. Both of those are based on tracings of bupressed boring beetles in uh, the Bighorn Mountains in Wyoming. And to me, they're really beautiful. Uh, I asked uh, Patrick Tobin when I made the, the first one, volume 13 over there, because it has bark uh, with mountain pine beetle um, galleries in it as the covers, and it has uh, boring beetle tracings, non-bark beetle tracings on the inside. I said, what do you think about that? Is that okay? And he said, well, you know, I think of uh, bark beetles as the primary invaders and bupressids as the janitors. Right. So I've, I've veered a little off topic um, by um, including a few boring beetles. But to me, their galleries are very beautiful. I understand they're kind of the bane of uh, lumber companies and um, cabinet makers because they can actually be embedded for a very long time uh, in, in wood. All of my books uh, have been soaked in wood preservative, where it's actual wood. I'm pretty sure that anything in there is dead. Uh, I heard a horror story about someone's exhibit in a museum, you know, that had things crawling out of it. So you'll be relieved to know that uh, nothing's going to crawl out of those. Great. Yes. Well, you started out as a painter, and watercolor. I'm still a painter. Of I've taken classes. I've taught myself a lot. My husband says he hates to be, doesn't like to be home when I'm working because there's a lot of cursing from the uh, basement when something doesn't work. All of it's a learning process, but to me that's sort of what's fun too. And I think any good uh, laboratory scientist undergoes a fairly similar um, experience of trying to figure out how to set up the experiment. You know, in the first few times, maybe it doesn't work. Uh, in fact, I think one practice I, I should have adopted from, from scientists is a lab book, is a lab notebook, where I keep track of everything I've tried uh, and what the results were. Um, I have boxes of test materials, but of course that's not searchable. Uh, so, you know, I think there's a lot of, lot of room for practice exchanges. <laughs> Thank you. All right. I think we're uh, out of time. Yeah, thank you so much. You're welcome. It's, I, you may have noticed I love a challenge.